This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I would strongly suggest most naturopaths start walking into their patient's home and you'll be shocked what you're seeing because they're elephants in everyone's house, everyone's house. The goal is always, how can we get you to be as healthy as we can be? So we need to eat well. And remember, it's not only about how much you eat, it's about what you eat and when you eat. Every single pregnancy that the mother has, be it a miscarriage, an early loss, a late loss, a stillbirth, a termination, whatever, or a live birth, Cells of that child are forevermore going to be present in her body and cells of her are going to be present in the fetus's body. What that means from a physical lens is that those cells will do different things in both bodies. This is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, the podcast that's open-minded enough to take in all sides of a clinical story. You'll hear from researchers, doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists and patients. We look at common clinical presentations through a different lens. It's open, frank and sometimes controversial. Nothing is off limits. Will it change the way you treat? We'll leave that up to you. In season one of Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, we look at children's health. We talk to experts in the field who will take you into their clinics and share their experience. We'll hear the inspirational stories of change from patients and their families along their healing journey. Let's continue our conversation from episode one. Jane Hutchins is a naturopath and registered nurse. She also has a Master of Science in Reproductive Health Sciences and Human Genetics from the University of Sydney, and she's currently studying her PhD. We spoke in episode one about the metabolic impact on children born to parents who lived through the Dutch famine. But what happens at a time when there's overnutrition or undernutrition due to dietary choice? I think we don't have the average Australian in our clinics. We sometimes have people who are healthier than us. <laughs> um, and we sometimes, you know, they, they tell me what they eat and I think, wow, that's great. <laughs> Can I come to your house? Um, but we also have people at the other end who I, I, have, <laughs> I haven't seen it for a long time, but I had a client who gave me permission to repeat this story. She, she used to have Devon slices wrapped around a Tim Tam. Even the <laughs> flavour of that. <laughs> Which is why I remember it. Um, like, what, what are you doing? Like, she was a normal, smart woman. I know, it doesn't work on any level whatsoever. So we do sometimes get some aberrant things. But the, the sorts of things that I see most are in my clinic are really things that are in response to social media. So they're people who want to adopt a vegan lifestyle because an influencer who's really hot is eating a, a vegan lifestyle and, you know, maybe I'll get a six-pack and long blonde hair if I eat that. And that's okay, but there's a really good chance that they're undernourished in key nutrients. So they might not have enough zinc or calcium or taurine or tyrosine or iron, you know, and if she does it well, she may absolutely have all of those things. 
but it's whether or not they've adopted a dietary change with the resources they need to be able to do that well. And often when I see those women, they're not ovulating. And that's why I'm seeing them because they're coming to me because they're not having periods. And then I realise they're desperately undernourished. Or I'll see someone who has a 90% carb diet, (laughs) which would be yum, Um, but problematic in different ways. Um, or, Or keto, you know, I lost all this weight on keto and that's great. Skin's really awful and your thyroid's not working and you're also not ovulating. So it's just helping women to understand what works best for their bodies because some women do okay on, on, on quite a high fat and protein diet. And if they are still ovulating and their mood's okay and their brain still works and their thyroid is still functional, awesome. Let's just make sure all of those things are working and their nutrient status for the ones that we can test reliably is okay and they're ovulating and everything's hunky-dory, then that's great. While we're talking about diet, what about pregnant women who are overweight and obese? What impact does that have on the long-term health of the child? So it works both ways. So underweight and weight loss, as well as being overweight and excessive gestational weight gain, have negative outcomes. But one of the things that we often think, and it's kind of logical, it's, it seems like a really easy timeline or storyline, is that if you have a really overweight or obese woman, that she's going to have a really big baby and that baby's going to have cardiovascular disease and metabolic syndrome when they're 40 instead of when they're 65. But actually, that's not necessarily the case. And an underweight woman or an undernourished woman who has a small for gestational age baby, or certainly, definitely if it's a premature baby as well, that child has a greater chance of cardiometabolic dysfunction as an adult. And when I say as an adult, some of that research is showing in late teens, so kind of young adult. What's the research telling us in this area? So there's a a retrospective study of gestational weight gain in over 700,000 women who had single-term births, so just one, one baby, not twins or triplets. And in women who were overweight and obese, they actually had a lower rate of pregnancy or gestational hypertension and preeclampsia and a lower rate of non-elective caesarean sections. So that's overweight and obese. This is out of 709,575 births. So it's a fair size study. The trick was that benefit was outweighed by some of the complications, which included an increased risk of preterm delivery and small for gestational age birth, and particularly for women who had a BMI of 30 to 39.9. So they're obese, but they're, they're not unusual. Like having a BMI of 32 is not a standout by any stretch. So that increased risk of preterm and small babies was biggest for that BMI group, taking into consideration all the flaws of the BMI. But with women who had a BMI of over 40, they didn't have an increased risk of preterm or small babies. What do you put that down to, Jane? How can you explain that? Well, one of the things in this study that they put it down to was then patterns of gestational weight loss. So the significance or the size of the weight loss and the, I guess, how aggressive the approach to the weight loss was. And having really marked gestational weight loss was worse than being really obese. You don't tell someone who's pregnant to go on a crazy diet, even if they're 100 kilos. So you might think, oh, yeah, I need 
to for for the baby, and yes, there are some associated risks, but the risk of her going on a weight loss diet is worse. And because that's my theme for the day, you're messing with her head. <laughs> you know, the goal is to be well. And even in preconception, if I have a patient who's very overweight or obese, the goal is always, how can we get you to be as healthy as we can be? And yes, some of that will be weight loss, but the goal isn't we want to get you to this number because then the focus is on the number and the focus is on deprivation. The focus is on these are the nutrients that you need to grow a baby. This is what's going to help you feel good. Got a spot of insulin resistance here. Let's address that. And let's, you know, you're going into a bit of a marathon. You've got a nine-month gestation period. You need to do some training. (laughs) What about hypertension in pregnancy? So in a maternal context, being pregnant, just with the additional, you know, cardiac output and work that the heart has to do with that increased blood volume and growing two new organs, growing a new baby and growing a placenta. So really the heart is serving three distinct entities, the heart goes under remodeling during pregnancy, and that can be good or bad. Um, And hypertension will tend towards making that bad for the mother. And if it's bad for the mother, it's bad for the baby. It's just kind of a no-brainer, it just is. So having hypertension in pregnancy at the low end, right through to preeclampsia, for her, increased thromboembolisms, stroke, hemorrhage, all of the things, renal failure, hepatic issues, platelet issues, seizures, preeclampsia, renal disease. Did I say that? Yeah, I did. Um, And all of those will flow onto the child. So apart from just the vascular tension aspect, it also becomes an oxidation aspect. And so that the hypertensive impact and the oxidative impact on the microcirculation to the placenta and then into the child, unborn child, increases the risk of pretty much anything you want to think of. In fact, you don't want to think of them. But things like intrauterine growth restriction, neonatal respiratory problems, placental abruption, pregnancy loss, stillbirth, preterm, fetal death, all of those things. And they will also include the risk of preterm birth, which you know, include some of those things, like the respiratory difficulties. But also if you have a preterm birth and if you have a little baby, then that baby has that chance of cardiometabolic issues later in life. So diabetes, renal disease, thrombophilia, so excessive clotting. And the more severe the hypertension, the worse the outcome, and the earlier the hypertension, the worse the outcome because you're impacting the placenta, which will impact the baby. And there's a slight difference between chronic hypertension and gestational hypertension, um, but both bad. So chronic is where you're hypertensive before you got pregnant, but you don't want either, obviously. And you know, having oxidative damage to the placenta, you'll get DNA transcription issues, and you'll get all of the oxidation things that we think about anywhere in the body prematurity, all of those, why did that baby die? Why we? Why do we have six stillbirths a week in Australia when autopsy is done on those beautiful babies? They're like, oh, they're fine. It's a placental issue, I'm sure, a whole bunch of it is. And so with that the hypertension and oxidation and inflammation, 
it affects platelets, which will affect blood flow to the placenta. That's the kind of really basic level. Um, it affects how enzymes act in the placenta and fetus and how they utilise nutrients, which may affect methylation. They reduce or impact the carriage of oxygen to the baby. So some really kind of straightforward things. So get the blood pressure down <laughs> and do preconception if you can. And we know that there's some stuff we can do around fitness, around nutrients, having having some uh, you know, all of your methyl factors and having some omega-3 fatty acids and getting some exercise and helping people learn strategies to lower their blood pressure through relaxation techniques. So whether they do a walking meditation but call it going for a bushwalk or whether they you know, go and sit in transcendental meditation for a couple of hours a day, it doesn't really matter need to find something where they can self-regulate and lower their own blood pressure. And it's pretty wild when you can. That's, that's really empowering, actually. That feels really cool. Jane estimates that less than 10% of her patients would be hypertensive. Jane, what are your favourite go-tos with these patients? Some beautiful salvia metarizer and some olive and all things being equal, I'd give everyone Leonurus cardiaca. <laughs> If they've got an ingrown toenail, take some of this. Um, <laughs> so, and again, it's thinking around what are, what's the physiological driver of the hypertension. If they're only hypertensive when they're stressed, then deal with their stress. And bucket loads of magnesium. Another big unspoken area is alcohol consumption. A recent study concluded that there's no safe level of caffeine in pregnancy. Is it the same for alcohol? Jane Hutchins. Australia recently had guidelines to say there is no known safe level of alcohol consumption in pregnancy. And my heart wants to say, just don't drink ever anything. But I have certainly drunk in my time. And so I'm really torn between that harm minimization and the don't drink ever when you're pregnant. And I am much stronger towards the just don't drink, like just don't drink, don't do it. So this study was done in Western Australia and they looked at Adolescents, teenagers from 10 years of age to 17 and 11 months, so just before adulthood, and they were in the only youth detention centre in Western Australia and just used the standard Australian guidelines for the diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome. There were 99 young people involved. 93% of them were male and 74% were Indigenous. 89% of them had at least one domain of severe neurodevelopmental impairment. Not just kind of vaguely affected, severe, it's 89%. So that's just one domain. But to get the full Monty diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome, there was a prevalence of 36%. So 20% higher in this particular state than the Canadian study. Mm. How do you find that in clinic? Do you find that's an easy sell for people for you to say, look, it's just not, it's not worth drinking, don't drink, or, or, or is it difficult? Yeah, look, I think it varies. And again, I think it, I don't necessarily have people who are a huge raging party in my clinic. But yeah, there, there's certainly some pushback. And, and yeah, I'm just thinking of a, a woman who had a newborn and a toddler and she was drinking the better part of a bottle of scotch a day, which I just didn't know how it was humanly possible. <laughs> and I've got, and I've, I've got a pretty good threshold for alcohol. And I was like, wow, here you go, girl. Um, <laughs> But, I mean, obviously she wasn't pregnant, but it still had an influence on, on her as a person. 
because let's not forget we have to remember she's a person on, on her own right, but also as a, a mother. So the question wasn't just, oh, for God's sake, will you stop drinking? How irresponsible. The question was, what's happening for you? That she was in a world of pain. And when people have addictions, whatever it is, the addiction's a symptom, not the problem. So you need to think about, well, why why is that? There was this song in the 70s, um, which was, um, I drink to get drunk, I don't know why I smoke. Um, <laughs> I always remembered the line. Um, and people will drink because wine's nice and it goes really well with your dinner. But when you drink to get drunk, you're numb. You're usually dealing with anxiety or pain. So you need to start at that point. And that person may not know that. can be a really delicate, tricky point. Um, and, you know, sometimes with addictions, you just swap one addiction to the other and and maybe that's okay. So it's better to be addicted to doing solitaire on your phone than getting drunk. <laughs> so ha- having really good referral networks, you need to know who your mental health first aid team is in your area. So if you've got someone in your clinic who feels a bit suicidal or, or is clearly really distressed, you need to be able to pick up the phone and ring someone then. And then at a less acute form, you need to know who works with people who have experienced childhood sexual trauma or who have had their second stillbirth and are broken. So depending, you know, like us, psychologists and counsellors, you you want to have a, a grouping of people who have specific skills or areas that they work in. Your life might, may have been hunky-dory, but now you have this really sick child who spent the last two years in hospital. That person needs support. They need food cooked for them and they need their other child cared for, but wow, they need to be held. And if they go and have a glass of wine every night when they get home from the hospital and then get pregnant because, you know, it just happened, you have to support them through that and again come back to that guilt. No point saying, oh, my God, if only he hadn't drunk. That's not going to work. So now that we're all feeling completely overwhelmed, how do we navigate this with our patients? We know that our diet, lifestyle and environment interact with our genes and obviously our microbiome as well, which can be considered part of our genome as the microbes coexist with us and provide genes to carry out processes that our own genome can't. So we need to eat well. And remember, it's not only about how much you eat, it's about what you eat and when you eat. Plant foods contains vitamins and minerals, but also these signals that reflect the environment. And many of these phytochemicals are anti-inflammatory and antioxidant and also feed the microbiome. Timing of food is also important as every tissue of the body is subject to control by circadian clocks. So, for example, your digestive system and your metabolic machinery is not primed to receive food at midnight. This is the time your autophagy or your cellular housekeeping is activated. So we can use strategies such as intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding, depending on the individual. And 
Seasonal foods also send signals to your body as we are not only regulated by circadian clocks, but likely seasonal clocks too. So try and eat locally grown seasonal produce, obviously organic, but doesn't contain lots of um, added chemicals. And seasonal foods, interestingly, also include microRNAs, which, as you'll remember, is one of our epigenetic uh, mechanisms for regulation. So it's about being physically active. This helps with metabolic health and detoxification, and this stimulates mitochondrial biogenesis and brain-derived neurotrophic factor also, which is interesting. So the more muscle you have, the more healthier your mitochondria will be, and you'll be more insulin-sensitive and burn fat. And one of the ways your body gets rid of toxins is via the lymphatic system, which unlike the circulatory system that has a pump, which is the heart, and blood vessels that contract, the only way you can move lymph through the body to collect metabolic waste and toxins is by muscle contraction or um, movement. And obviously, you can use lymphatic drainage massage. So being physically active is also great for detoxification. What else do you consider in that preconception period? Um, well, we've kind of discussed the importance of methylation as an epigenetic uh, modification, which is important for development and DNA repair. But it's also important for energy generation. Um, for example, carnitine is trimethyllysine. So we need to make sure that we've got a good methylation cycle happening. So adequacy of folate and the B vitamins methionine from dietary protein. Um, obviously, we need dietary antioxidants. Um, so this prevents the formation of oxidized DNA and that can cause um, gene mutations. Um, so oxidative stress actually uh, reduces our methylation pathways because it draws down homocysteine to make glutathione and therefore we have less methionine. So there's certain pathways that we really need to focus on. But also I'd say we need to look at heavy metals and environmental toxins because they can, these can really interfere with the enzymes in not only our methylation pathways, but many, many other um, pathway, biochemical pathways in the body. So using great um, phytochemicals like the sulforaphanes from broccoli sprouts and other phytonutrients, they're going to upregulate our phase two conjugation enzymes um, via the transcription factor NRF2. And this also becomes upregulates all of our antioxidant enzymes. And I think one of the things that I have a conversation a lot with patients is, um, is about um, how our diet can really cause an increase in acidity in the body. And so if you remember back to biology, enzyme activity is determined by genes that code for the proteins that we've talked about. But enzyme activity is also determined by the pH and our temperature. So as humans, we're fairly thermostable. So, but we can have variants in genes coding for the enzymes. A common one is the MTHFR gene, 
which may affect the activity, but even in the absence of a variant, if we have latent acidity at a tissue level, this may also reduce um, the enzyme activity. So an alkaline-forming diet with plenty of plant foods containing alkalizing minerals and an appropriate amount of protein will help prevent latent acidity. And I find a lot of people, if they're doing particular diets, they might have too much protein in their diet. And animal proteins contain methionine and other sulfur-containing amino acids, which are broken down to form sulfuric acid. So this can be a cause of, of latent acidity in the body. So eat the right amount of protein for your muscle mass and not too much. we're dealing with someone who wants to conceive, we have the three-month preconception period. Is it a preconception period for you or is it a lifestyle change? Are we as naturopaths equipped well enough to look at all the possible exposures? Nicole Bilsma. Are we equipped to do environmental exposure histories? No, but it's not difficult to do. So Professor Marco and I are developing an environmental exposure history that patients can use that will come up with reports to look at what potential exposures are occurring, especially in the built environment, and what ramifications of that. And hopefully with big data sets, be able to write papers to go, well, this is how many people with MS had these sort of issues in their house and that sort of stuff, so that it can give the clinician the detail. To do an environmental exposure history, well, it, it actually takes a long time. So when I asked those doctors about how they deal with toxicant exposures, they couldn't agree on anything except one thing. And this was the most important part of the whole paper, which is that of all the clinical tools these doctors had to deal with patients with tricky chronic illnesses and especially chronic fatigue syndrome, they all agreed that the best tool a doctor or naturopath could have is an environmental exposure history and that it takes 90 minutes in the first consultation. All of them were not trained on how to do this. Some of these doctors have been dealing with chronic fatigue sufferers for 30, 40 years, and they had to make it up themselves based on feedback they gained from their clients. So that's what we started. I've started to put together. Um, and, and this is important. So they, naturopaths and clinicians need to know how to take an environmental exposure history because we focus on diet, which is fantastic. But we do it for four years and we completely ignore drinking water, completely ignore the air, we completely ignore the environment where you spend 90% of your time, which is ridiculous. And it was the frustration of seeing 90% of my colleagues after spending $30,000 on a naturopathic degree 30 years ago, you know, within five years they were not practising anymore. Fair enough, a lot of them probably didn't have that intention, but a lot of them dropped out because they're not getting results because they're not addressing the environment. This can be overwhelming for practitioners and patients alike. Apart from taking a thorough exposure history, where do we start? Well, the good news is the human body has remarkable neuroplasticity. It has incredible capacity to deal with a huge onslaught of multiple factors from stress and chemicals and even smoking and drugs. And, you know, it's amazing. So the sooner you start in reducing your toxic load, the better the outcome for reproduction. So it's a matter of going through and looking at where the toxicants are coming from, getting them off perfume and reducing their exposures to plastics in food and flame retardants and really getting them to think about, you know, probably the best advice I'd give my patients is turn your TV off and don't believe all the BS on the propaganda and all the news because <laughs> there's so much information, it's, especially now with COVID. I mean, poor people, 
they have no idea whether to look and what to believe, etc. They're so confused. You really got to get like I'm teaching my kids. Well, you know, then they don't watch news or anything like that. Let's get on to PubMed and see what's really going on, as opposed to what people think. And clove oil for mold, for God's sake, is ridiculous. So there's too much crap on social media. Um, people need to switch the TVs off and actually start, unfortunately, researching themselves. Public health does not exist except for better drinking water quality in the sewage system. There's a lot to be said about public health, and I talk a lot about it in the first chapter of my book on the real cost of progress. So it's a matter of just because it's on the supermarket shelf doesn't mean it's been tested. There's over 165 million chemicals registered for use on the world's largest database, the Chemical Abstract Service, and every 60 seconds another 20 chemicals are registered. 90% have never been tested. So you need to think about the crap that you put on your body. Don't put moisturisers on because they've got pesticides to preserve them. Don't put stuff on your body where your largest organ is absorbing it all the time. Um, you know, you don't want to kill off your skin microbiome by putting a moisturiser on that's loaded with pesticides to keep the bacteria, you know, not spoiling it. Um, perfumes, air fresheners, uh, cleaning products are harsh like, uh, um, you know, uh, bleach and ammonia. You need to avoid all that crap. You don't need harsh chemicals and you don't want antibacterials in the house. A healthy home is one that smells like fresh air. So for me, it's living in an environment where the trees are the filter. Because if you don't get a filter, your body will be the filter. I have a water filter. Before I even look at someone's diet, you've got to look at their water filter. And that's the irony, you know, $40 probiotic, drinking chlorinated water is a joke. So you've got to really think about the importance of a water filter is not a necessity. It's an, it's absolutely important, sorry, not a luxury, it's a necessity. You don't want chlorine, you don't want fluoride, you don't want aluminium, um, you don't want any of the toxic metals that often come in drinking water as well. So that is the first thing before you even look. So to me, as I started to unpack this, what I did was think, okay, what do we need first before we die? And that's air. So let's focus on air quality with the patient. Get rid of the air fresheners and all the chemicals, fragrances, especially bad because they're full of phthalates and hormone-disrupting chemicals. Pesticide management, none. You know, keep the spider webs around the house. Um, they're your management. You know, if you've got a lot of rats, buy a cat. You know, nature has a way to deal with pests. You watch and mimic nature. That's the key with building biology. And naturopathies to, to mimic nature. So you want to reduce the toxic load as much as possible. Then water. After air, it's water. So how much water are we drinking? We drink. We need more water than we need food. And then go into the food. So we need to put it into context. And I think this is where we've lost in naturopathies. We've ignored the air and pretty much ignored the water and just focused on the food when, in fact, we need to look at all of that. So a lot of it's common sense. For me, it's amazing when I go into people's homes, they'll spend the money on organic food, but they'll have seven cans of mortine because they have a phobia for spiders and then space, you know, run around the house with a whole can chasing one fly and think that's okay, but they've got organic food. How's a naturopath going to pick it up? They don't because the patient doesn't see that's a problem. I've gone into people's homes with lawyers and doctors and it's clutter hoarding house and there's dog crap all over the place and they think that's okay. I would strongly suggest most naturopaths start walking into their patient's home and you'll be shocked what you see because they're elephants in everyone's house. Everyone's house.
So we've just heard some practical things we can do in the preconception period, but let's now explore an alternative view of the preconception period as an opportunity to become ready for parenthood. Leia Hechtman is a highly experienced and respected naturopath, very well known in the area of fertility, pregnancy, and reproductive health. While highly evidence-based, I love that she also brings a spiritual element to her consultations. And, you know, I have this thing where I'm going really outside of centre, so just bear with me. Um, I have this thing with patients and I always talk to them in the first consultation around, do they feel a soul with them? Do they, can they see themselves having children? And, you know, and if they feel it and I feel it, we, we move forward. And if I don't see it or I, it really doesn't feel like it's um, entirely there, I try and guide them towards other things that might be less traumatic because ultimately if they don't achieve the outcome that they want, I'm inflicting pain on them and I don't mm. want to do that. Um, I'm a big believer that our children choose us. Um, mm. I don't think we choose them so much. I think they choose us. And I think that they choose us as opportunities of growth. You know, fathering and mothering children is the, I think, the greatest um, act of service you can ever do if you do it properly. Mm which means that it gives us the greatest opportunity of moving towards lightening our karma and moving towards enlightenment, which means that it's the greatest opportunity of bringing kindness to the world. So in all of that equation, if a person isn't ready for a particular soul that has chosen them, it often causes delays. And I do think that some of my job is helping them move towards that place of being ready. Mm. Um, and that might be in a wide variety of measures. You know, it might be in, you know, like what we were talking about before, you know, removing talates from their, di from their diet and lifestyle, or it might be, you know, addressing a deficiency, but getting them physically, spiritually, emotionally, and mentally ready to birth this child. And some of our children are bigger than others and just bigger spirits, so to speak. And mm. so, you know, there's, they're a bigger journey. Their pregnancies are bigger the journey to conceive them is bigger. And when those parents meet those children, there's an undeniable knowing of it's all been worth it. You know, there's mm. this sense of I can understand that the me five years ago would not have been the parent that they need and deserve or that I wasn't ready for whatever reason I needed to shift this. But there's always an understanding and there's always a knowing and then there's always this beautiful scenario where this child has been given an opportunity of easing their process of incarnation, you know, easing their mm. journey so they have an easier life. And do you have these discussions with your patients? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And some are more ready to hear it than others and some you go more, you know, more deeply into it than others. Mm. And I always try and find a language that fits with their values and their understanding of the mm. process so that I'm not, mm. you know, just putting mine on them. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, as Viktor Frankl's always said it, we're all searching for meaning and if you can find an infertile couple a sense of meaning and a plan and help them see a path to be able to achieve what it is that they want, I think there's no greater gift as a clinician. And of course, generational influences go beyond diet, environmental toxins and stress. Let's talk about microchimerism and my rudimentary, you know, explanation is the maternal cells crossing the placenta, colonizing the fetus. And then if it's not the first child, then there will also be the cells from the siblings crossing the placenta and colonizing the fetus. Um, but can you give your um, much more detailed explanation of that? 
course. <laughs> so the concept of microchimerism, so chimera, you know, it's an interesting word. And what we're looking at is essentially that when a woman is pregnant, and the generation of the embryo and the growth into the fetus and eventual child has amazing immunological and cellular changes in her body and she's forever changed and we know that. And what essentially happens is, is that parts of her go into the child and these are the chimera cells. So the microchimeric change of the mother goes into the child and similarly the cells of the child are given to the mother. They do cross through the placenta, which is undoubtedly the most fascinating organ in the body, let's be honest. And I think we understand about, you know, 2%. Um, <laughs> and that cross-exchange of cells changes both parties forevermore. And every single pregnancy that the mother has, be it a miscarriage, an early loss, a late loss, a stillbirth, a termination, whatever, or a live birth, cells of that child are forevermore going to be present in her body and cells of her are going to be present in the fetus's body. And so it's this whole idea and this whole notion that the cellular exchange between the two parties is unbreakable. What that means from a physical lens is that those cells will do different things in both bodies. And the research goes very broadly in this area. And I don't think that they've kind of nailed it yet, I'll be honest with you. But what we do know is that it predominantly tends to affect the immune system of both parties in positive and negative ways. In the fetus, it enables the fetus to develop immunological maturity. And so it has exposures of things from the parent and it also enables it to develop a whole, you know, antigen-antibody response and it enables it to start to understand, well, mum has antibodies against this, so I will automatically get it. Mm. And then in the mother, what it does is it has positive and negative effects. Positive effects are that it helps her to have immune development that helps the specificity of the genetics of the fetus. So if the fetus's genetics are towards a negative immune occurrence, her immune system will then pass over cells to help protect the fetus mm. and it will help give her body the ability to have kind of like a mounted defence against it. But equally, it's been shown to increase her risk of certain cancers in some situations, lots of animal studies on that more than human. And also it does very weird and wonderful things to her thyroid. And the thyroid piece is one that was like such an aha moment for me when I found that out because in clinical practice, we know that a woman's thyroid does weird and wonderful things when she's pregnant. And the more pregnancy she has, the more weird and wonderful things it does. <laughs> and so what was so fascinating for me was, well, the more microchimeric cells she has for more kids explains why the thyroid seems to get hit. And something that I always say to colleagues, um, you know, when I lecture or anything or patients the thyroid is very, very much a secondary response. You know, we tend to look at it and we kind of always go, oh, this patient has hypothyroidism or they have Graves' disease or whatever. That's their primary disorder. 99.9% of the time, you will always see that there is, was another driver that made that thyroid do something mm. odd. Mm. And it's really important to always identify what that is. Was it an infection? You know, was it a trauma? Was it a heavy metal exposure? Whatever. So that's number one. But number two, in that pregnancy scenario, her thyroid may have never done anything crazy until she delivers that first child or until she has that first miscarriage or until she has that first conception that was actually a late period that she didn't realise was a conception and that's the stuff that you'll dig out when you're talking to her. Um, but this is where clinically it's made me test thyroid function at two weeks and six weeks postpartum for every woman because thyroids will just turn on you and you didn't anticipate it and it's due to the microchimeric impact. 
Mm. So it's changed the way that you test. Um, Absolutely. You test everyone, but it, but has it changed the way you treat or it just gives you a, an explanation for something that's happening? Look, I think it's changed the way that I treat, you know, if I sort of think about this a little bit more, it's changed the way that I treat for women where it's their second, third, fourth, fifth pregnancy mm-hmm. because I know that the thyroid is going to be more drained because of the microchimeric effect. So I will test them more through the pregnancy. I'll monitor their selenium, their zinc, you know, things like that, more their iodine for obvious reasons, more regularly. If they're a Hashimoto's person, for example, I'll make sure that preconceptually, you know, for their third pregnancy, we've got a really good understanding of their TPO antibodies as well as their iodine. And I'll do a challenge that I often do. So we know the research that shows that in most women, and I think in clinical practice, it's probably three quarters of women that I'll see, if they have a presence of TPO antibodies, if you give them iodine, it increases their TPO antibodies. Mm. It doesn't seem to affect their TG antibodies, but I'll touch on that in a little bit. And so, we, you know, like there's always been this thing and, and even in most prenatals on the market, they all have iodine in them and they're not factoring in the TPO antibody um, impact. Mm. And so, and I apologise, I'm talking in acronyms, thyroperoxidase antibodies. No. Um, and so, you know, when we're talking about a TPO antibody, I do an iodine challenge with women where I'll get two TPO antibody Um, levels in a non-pregnant patient, we'll then give them 150 micrograms of iodine. I'll retest their TPO antibodies four weeks later. And if there's any increase, we can it. If there's no increase, then we'll increase it to 250 and then we'll retest again. Mm -hmm. And I'll do all of this before they conceive so that I I can track it because I want to see if that can be on 250 micrograms of iodine or potentially higher. I'll Mm -hmm. never go into milligram doses of people with TPO antibodies. And the interesting phenomena to also be mindful of is in a pregnant scenario, first trimester TPO antibodies will be elevated, but they'll always reduce in second and third, and then they bounce back once she's delivered the baby. So then you've just got to be mindful of, is it first, second, third, fourth pregnancy? Because all of these things will be larger, bigger, more impactful, and you've got to be really mindful of it. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting because I did some reading on on that link between iodine and TPO antibodies, but it's interesting mm. to find that in clinic yourself. Absolutely. And I don't know a lot of clinicians that are doing the testing that I'm doing. Mm. I've spoken to a few that I supervise and they've sort of said, you know, test it and let's get a bit of a body of evidence to see its efficacy. I've mm. tested it on enough of my patients to know that it works mm. um, because, you know, if you don't give iodine to a woman, and she does have low T3, T4 because of her thyroid antibodies and stuff, you're going to run the risk of hearing issues or eyesight issues or yeah. whatever. So you want to give it to them. But if you're giving it and you're causing more autoimmunity, then she's going to miscarry. Um, and I just love, uh, I love um, that energetic side of things. So the mum has the cells of her child in her yeah. and this energetic communication. Um, can you expand more on that, please? Yeah, of course. Look, I... As a parent, so I've got two children and obviously a clinician that helps a lot of people have kids, I've, I always love finding the science that gives an explanation to the spiritual. And so for me, you know, my bond with my children has always blown me away. You know, I, I knew what was coming, but I had no idea. Um, so it's that idea that, you know, the idea of microchimerism gives us a lens to help us understand how does a mother know her child in ways that defy science that defy logical constructive interpretation? How does she know what they're feeling? How does she know how they're feeling in another suburb, state, country? You know, how does she know that her child needs to be breastfed 
when she's not even in the room with them? How does her breast give her letdown response when her child is hungry and her child is five kilometers away from her or 50 kilometers away from her? The microchimeric aspect is, you know, and I talk to my kids about it a lot. You know, there's this beautiful children's book which talks about, you know, we all have these threads between ourselves and our children. And I think it's through the microchimeric cells. And I talk to my kids and I always say to them, you know, if you're not with me and you feel down or you feel like you need a hug from me or anything like that, you pull at that string and, and you pull at those cells that are in your body. Little bits of me are in you and little bits of you are in me and you pull on them and I'll know straight away that you need me and you'll feel me hugging you. You know, you'll feel me with you. And I think as parents, we know that to be true. You know, we know that, that that bond is there and it's unmistakable. But now I think we start to have a language for it through a scientific lens, which can only give us benefit. You know, it can only help us. In the next episode of Between Clinical Minds, we take a close look at spectrum disorders. We speak to two women who have children on the spectrum. One is a herbalist and nutritionist in Sydney, Brittany Darling, and the other is an integrative GP from Melbourne, Dr. Eilina Ismail. Hear about how their children's diagnoses changed the way they treat and their perspective on life. Thank you for listening. We hope this podcast engaged and empowered you. And thank you to all of our experts. You can read more information on each of them on our website, bioconceptsengage.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode of Between Clinical Minds, please refer a friend and share the love. To continue the conversation, you can contact us at bioconceptsengage.com.au, where community is more than a concept.